Welcome to the Miller Oddcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello, and welcome to Miller Oddcast, the Missouri Review podcast where we listen to and discuss the finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. I'm Mark McKee, TMR's Managing Editor. Thank you for being here, wherever here is, for episode 56, Silent No More, from Sharon Sabata. Sharon Sabata is a writer, a reporter for Pacifica KPFA in Berkeley, California, the program director of a women's and gender equity center, a mom, and a doula. Sabata notes, I'm submitting the story of a woman, June, whose roots are in the same small Wisconsin town as mine. I knew nothing about her, as she's five years younger than me, until she reached out to me last summer, as I was in the thick of covering the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis via Zoom interviews. If not for the pandemic, my girls and I would have been in Minnesota and Wisconsin, as we were every summer. June reached out with pictures of Justice for George Floyd rallies from different cities in Wisconsin, and shared that she was following my coverage. Along with June's posts on my social media pages were posts of boys who had grown into men from my hometown, who were more sympathetic with the officers or the business owners impacted by the worldwide outrage than to George Floyd, who had the life squeezed out of him under the knee of Derry Chauvin. After engaging with me over my coverage of Floyd's death and calls for police reform, June asked if she could share a piece of her writing with me. It was then that I realized that June was the Jane Doe that had been alluded to in my Wisconsin newspapers years earlier. June agreed to do an interview with me. We spoke, not for the normal 30 minutes that I usually allot for interviews, but for three hours and 33 minutes. It turned out that June had an arsenal of traumatic experiences with a police officer in Whitehall, Wisconsin, known as a nice guy. She recalled being thought of as trailer trash and being referred to first as the daughter of the town whore, and later as the town whore. This kept her silent and afraid for many years. While June ultimately was tracked down by federal investigators and became a key witness in the case against the officer, this interview was June's first time sharing her story in full. A 30-minute version of this story that also incorporated the voice and analysis of a gender sociologist aired on KPFA's International Women's Day special on March 9, 2021. The interview took place in the summer of 2020, in the midst of the pandemic lockdown. Before you listen to this piece, I will mention that I'm not going to offer a comment after it. In lieu of that comment, I will offer this content warning. What follows is the chilling, terrifying, infuriating, and wrenching account of brutal sexual assault, the assault and menace of a minor, and the pathological abuse of power by someone sworn to protect and serve the very person who is targeted for abuse. What also follows is the sound of someone who has done tremendous work to move beyond being a victim to being a survivor, courageously telling her story. By any measure, this is the story of human triumph in the face of staggering, grotesque horrors. And now... Silent No More, from Sharon Sabata. 
Miriel Rukesir once rhetorically asked, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open, she said. This particular story that I'm going to tell you today is the story of another woman who I'll call June because she's asked that I not use her actual name. It's an unfortunate coming-of-age story from the rural town of Whitehall, Wisconsin. It happened more than two decades ago, and the woman, who is now a single mother of four, is still piecing her life back together. There was a night in July of 1996, July 26, 1996 to be exact. My mother and her then-boyfriend got into an argument, and something was thrown through the screen door, a stroller or something, and the neighbors called the police, and Dan Wineski showed up, who was the police officer on duty, and he told me I had to come make a statement, and I said I would just walk because I lived right next door to the police station. Uh, he said no. June got into Officer Wineski's vehicle, but she didn't end up at the police station. He went down to the other end of town by the A&W, and I said, this is not the police station. And he told me he was just making a quick trip through town to check on things. Instead of turning around, he went down. There's a little gravel road that'll take you past trees. And I think back there used to be the dog pound or something. Uh, he stopped on that little gravel road. June says she knew she was in trouble. I mean, just that sense with every fiber of my being that something was wrong. Plus, growing up in that town, there'd been rumors as far back as I can remember about him and things that he had done to other girls and women. So that was playing in my head. And I said, no, I'm going to get out now. And he said, no, you're not. And I was in the passenger seat and I, I kept looking down because right, it was his gun. I didn't know what to do or, or how to even react. And do I try to open the door? Do I run? I mean, where do I run? He's the police. Who do I tell what do I do and I asked what was going on and he just said I wasn't stupid and not to play stupid and I knew what was going to happen and I needed to do what was expected. What happened next would haunt June for the rest of her life. I could hear my heart in my ears. I was cold and shaking but yet sweating and then I could hear his zipper on his pants and then he stopped and I heard like this button and stuff like that. And I looked and he set his gun down on the dash and it was pointed right at me. Then he grabbed the back of my head and was pushing me down into his lap. And I just said, no, 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 no. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Just stop. I won't tell anybody. Just let me go. I don't want to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I was saying anything that could come out of my you know, mouth. Because you're 14 and he's trying to force you to perform oral sex. Oral sex, yes. And I was, I'm going to throw up, you know, anything I could think of. Um, and he said very clearly and very matter of fact, as if he was just giving me driving instructions almost, but just uh, do what you're told and be the good little whore that you know you are. And I had to, I had to start performing oral sex on him because I didn't, I didn't know if he was going to shoot me or I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, the feeling of it in my mouth, I mean, it was awful. And I just wanted it to be over and he kept pushing my head down further and further and I couldn't breathe. And then the radio went off and someone was talking on the radio. I, it was a call of some kind. And he just pulled me up really fast and told me to get out and, you know, not to 
fucking tell anybody or he would kill me. I opened the door as fast as I possibly could and fell. I, I don't even, I just fell out. And I know my leg was burning, but I didn't, I just got up and I ran and I didn't even realize how far I had ran, but I, I don't know where I was going, but I didn't end up at home. I ran all the way to the other side of town and I, I just, I collapsed. It was like a puddle. I, I just was watching the clouds and everything seemed very surreal, almost like it was a dream. I can remember thinking, thank God that call came in. And at the very same time I thought that, I felt guilty because I was thankful that someone needed help, you know, that someone else was in danger or in peril. And because of their situation, it saved me. June eventually made her way back home, but even home didn't feel like a safe place to land. I could see the broken screen door and it was all like instantaneous again because it was like that was the reason. And I couldn't go tell my mom what happened. Soon he came back to her home again to respond to another domestic disturbance between her mom and stepdad. There was another fight at my house and the cops got called because my mom and stepdad were drunk and fighting. And this time I think it was a small TV. Everything always went through our screen door. <laughs> we stopped fixing it because it just kept getting broken. And Wineski showed up and he said, well, you're gonna have to come make a statement. And I said, oh, no, I, I'm not falling for that again. He again had his weapon, but he put it on the table and he said that he would put that inside of me and pull the trigger if I ever pulled that shit again. Without a template for healthy relationships, June found herself in a cycle of abusive relationships. And when something happened between June and her then boyfriend, Officer Wineski was there to respond. JJ had been driving me around in his car and he was really mad at me. And Dan Wineski pulled us over and he could see that I was upset. I'm sure he could see that, you know, my face was messed up. And he goes, well, you have two choices. Do you want to stay with him or do you want to come with me? I basically had to choose between one hell or the other, you know, and at least with JJ, I thought I had a fighting chance. June has her suspicions about why the officer chose her. He had had interactions with me in the past from running away from home or my mom calling because we were arguing and I was refusing to listen. You know, I was very angry as a youth. June's mother was 18 when she had her and she had fled an abusive marriage to move to this tiny town in the middle of Wisconsin for a fresh start. My mom was a single mom for pretty much my whole life. My dad and her got divorced when I was two. She did the best she could with what she had. And she was bartender, you know, that's what she always did, but she was an alcoholic. And then her boyfriend, who, the, who she had the fight with that night, is now my stepfather. You don't know how to deal with being a teenager anyways when you're a teenager, and then you add all the messed up home stuff, and it just, it made me very angry to where I would kind of just do what I wanted to do. My mom would ground me, but I would still leave. You know, so he had interactions with me. Your mom had called him to help with family issues or he was always the hero. <laughs> My mom thought that he was one of the good guys because he didn't make her feel like she was worthless um, or put her down like a lot of people in that town had. And my mom by no means was a villain in this story. She just was a kid, you know, raising a kid and she didn't have a support system. And he knew that. June was almost 14 when her mom gave birth to June's younger sister. She 
became my world. And I would go to school and pick her up from the babysitters. And a lot of times I would be taken care of her all night because my parents didn't come home. It was tough, but her and I have a very strong relationship because of that. June says her family is an example of how intergenerational cycles of struggle and violence can be. My grandmother is also an alcoholic. So was her real father. Um, and then her stepfather is an alcoholic. Um, so there was always alcohol. And I think there was a lot of kids parenting themselves. You know, and obviously you repeat what you know, you know, until you can break the cycle or figure out how to do that. And I did that. And I didn't know I was doing that. By 16, June was pregnant with her own first child. It was then that she mustered up the courage to speak to the chief of police. I seen him at his personal vehicle and I walked over to him and I said, I really need to talk to you about something. And I swear without missing a beat, he goes, does it have to do with Wineski? And so I was like, yeah. He's like, well, I'm not on duty right now, so I officially can't take your statement. But when I come on duty, I'm going to come talk to you and we'll get this worked out. But that's not what happened. A couple hours later, someone was knocking on the door and I opened it and it was Wineski. He was not happy. Wineski informed me that nobody would be by to take my statement because there was nothing to take a statement on. And I needed to stop making up little high school girl stories. And he took his gun out and made me hold it under my chin. You know, I just, I stood there just terrified. And I can remember it, it felt like it weighed a thousand pounds. And I was so terrified because I was shaking and I thought, if I even breathe wrong, this is going to go off. And he just told me to remember how that felt. And you wouldn't want to find your sister decapitated on your front steps. Still a kid herself, June embarked on her own journey of motherhood at 16. Never again speaking about what the Whitehall officer had done to her. Until years later, when a federal investigator showed up at her door in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It turned out that many other women had began speaking about their interactions with the officer. But the name that kept coming up over and over was June's. When everything started to unfold and I was reading all these interviews, my name was everywhere. So it was obvious that my neighbors and the community knew that I had been a victim in some way, shape, or form, whether it was stalking or harassment. My name just kept coming up. I guess in my mind, and even then, I thought if somebody would step up and do what's right, but nobody did. Officer Wineski ultimately was charged. He was facing 33 years, and then he took what they call is an Alford plea. It's a way of pleading guilty without admitting your guilt. By 2012, it was clear to June that her now ex-husband was not the protector he'd once made himself out to be. When Wineski got off of supervision completely in 2012, my ex-husband would tell me almost daily, I'm going to tell him where you live. I'm going to tell him where you live. I'm going to watch when he shows up. And I'd be like, we have kids. You know, what are you talking about? And uh, he didn't care. And so I made the decision to take my kids and I was going to run to Canada because when Eski couldn't get me in Canada, my husband probably wouldn't care enough to try to find me there. He would just move on to another girl and um, I was going to flee. I didn't know how I was going to do that. I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't allowed to have money. Um, my ex-husband controlled all of that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have any identity outside of him, but I knew I wasn't going to let my kids be harmed. 
Feeling like she had no other option, she wrote bad checks to get cash, hoping she could get a fresh start. But her plan backfired. I opened a checking account and I wrote a bunch of bad checks off my own account and I would buy things and sell them and I was hoarding the cash because I needed money, right? And it, I was keeping a list of where I'd written these checks because I was going to find a way to make it right. I was going to pay these checks back, but right now I needed to get my kids out of there. I had to get out of there. I didn't think about the how I was going to make this or the logical part of my brain, which is there, was not kicking in saying, whoa, caution, this is dumb, this isn't going to work. Well, it didn't work. <laughs> I got arrested. They took all the money and they kept it. And I still don't know exactly where that goes. And it never got applied to the restitution because I have to pay all, I had to pay all that back. But it did get me away from my ex-husband. Now, June's name carries the felon asterisk behind it, making it hard for her to secure employment or follow her dream of being an advocate for other women experiencing trauma. It haunts me. I mean, I had to quit school because I was in nursing school. And they said they couldn't put me anywhere to do my clinicals because of my criminal record. Um, I haven't been able to find good jobs. I had somebody at an employment agency look me straight in my eye and tell me if I was a sex offender, I'd have a better chance of getting employed than money crimes. Because nobody cares about the reasoning, you know. And I've never been in, I haven't been in trouble since, you know, I've not, but it follows me around. And that's all directly related. And that's when I decided I can't keep being a victim. With lots of hard work and the support of a therapist, June says she has transitioned from a victim to a survivor. I knew I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to tell my story. I want people to know that this stuff happens. June says her own situation makes it impossible for her not to be critical of the officers in George Floyd's case. It angers me. I've seen so many people post about George Floyd and his criminal past and his past doings. Was he an angel? Absolutely not. But he did not deserve to be murdered. I don't care what he did. You know, they murdered him in front of the entire world and nobody did anything. Since the interview, June and the father of her youngest child split and she landed a job back in the same small place where she was once a victim. While June still faces some of the residual emotional trauma she has endured and knows the familiar struggle that many single moms face of making ends meet, she has high hopes for the future. If I can help other people find their voice and I can help other people feel strong, then I will continue to get my strength and I will continue to have my voice. And that can't be taken from me anymore. And that can't be silenced anymore. Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast 56, featuring Sharon Savada's Silent No More. Thanks, as always, to the outgoing Missouri Review contest editor, Bailey Boyd, and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Entries are now open for the next day for the second annual Perkoff Prize, the new opportunity from the Missouri Review, which awards $3,000 in publication to the poet, fiction writer, and essayist with the best work engaging the fields of health and medicine in evocative ways. Learn more at our website or subscribe to our newsletter for weekly updates on all our contests and other doings and transpirings. As ever, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Submit your work today. 
We also have tons of marvelous free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch on our website. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. <laughs>